Welcome to Calvary Church. We got to lift these people up in prayer. I, I actually went through the process and got my teaching credential way back in the day. Went through a semester of, of practice, te- what's that called? Student teaching. And realized that I love kids two days a week. I can't do it five. And so I'm a pastor. And uh, God bless all of you, especially the ones who have my kids. All right. Hey, um, let's do this. We are in a series, week three of a series. Uh, we are calling it Common Ground. Here's the idea and the concept, if you're just joining us, I'll catch you up, is that we used to have this thing where it was like, okay, there's us in the church and we have our views and we're going to be really dogmatic about it. And then there's the world. And we kind of pit this battle. It's, it's us against everybody else. And the interesting thing, and that, that's not a really great perspective to have, never should have been a great perspective to have, but that's just kind of how it works sometimes. But then it's even changed a little bit, even recently, to where we have differences between us in this room. And it's become so apparent lately, I'd say in the last year or two, especially amongst the political realm, um, where we, we see that there's differences between us. And what we want to try to do as a church community is figure out how can we be united in some of the things that divide us. Um, because we have division amongst us. Now, we'll get into that. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation. Next week, we're going to be talking about the value of, and sanctity of life and, and euthanasia and, and death and, and war and how do we kind of wrestle with some of these things. And, and how can we just sit down and instead of figure out what is dividing us, how do we find common ground between us? move forward in unity. It's kind of the the picture that we have set here is that we want to sit down and have this be like a a conversation. If you're wondering about the huge lampshade, we have one here too. But the the idea is that that Jesus would be illuminating these conversations, that he would be in the midst of these things, and that we are not going to be able to make any dent in culture. And like David Kinnaman said last week, we will be irrelevant and extreme, and nobody will want to come here and have any part or anything to do with Jesus if we're just going to dig our feet into the sand and say, no way, you're not like us. And what we should be doing, and the goal for us is, and I'll say this a few times this morning, is that the church, the church globally, and this church in particular, should be the safest place on earth for anybody to come to. We are going to be looking at this through the lens of our marriages, families, and other relationships. Um, And and I want to talk this through in terms of kind of restoration from the underground. And, And the idea is if we look at our culture, it is hard to be a believer. It's hard to be a Christ follower in our culture because things are just different. But if we're going to engage with culture, then we have to kind of have our junk together. We have to be dealing with and working through some of our own stuff before we are able to be receptive and to love people in their own stuff. Um, Ripped from the headlines just in the last couple of weeks, here is one. um, And with every word that gets added to this headline, this is legit just like two weeks ago. uh, It gets a little bit more awkward and we know less and less what to do with it, right? But mother and daughter who married after mom divorced her son, the mother and daughter are charged with incest. Real life case, real life thing going on. Would that mother and daughter 
who took their mug shots in matching Superman t-shirts, if they showed up here to Calvary Church this morning, would this be the safest place on earth for them? Or would we have all kinds of things in Bible verses to tell them and say why what they're doing is sinful and you can't be here. You need to get your act together before you show up. How about this one? Sex before kissing. How 15-year-old girls are dealing with porn-addicted boys. Just this week, when asked, how do you know a guy likes you, an eighth-grade girl replied, he still wants to talk to you after you give him oral sex. And not only that, but the article goes on to say that some of these 15-year-old boys have no shame, no problem with talking about the, the porn movie that they watched just the night before. In, in a culture where it feels like there's less and less shame or even responsibility or even guilt over their sin and brokenness over their sin, for us as Christians, we continue to go underground more and more. And so somehow we have to wrestle with this ourselves and figure out how can I live in this world, be a Christ follower, have my sin and and deal with it appropriately in a God-honoring way, and then reach out to those who are hurting and broken and be safe for them. And so we're going to talk through this. And I want to start off with this idea that God wants to redeem shame, that God has set forth what he would say is the best way to live. If we follow him, if we go after him, then he set up life in such a way that that our life will be the best with him. And we wander and we have trouble. And so because of that, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned, they were ashamed and they hid. But I want to even just throw out the idea that there is a shame that extends beyond just me as an individual person. That God wants to redeem shame that extends beyond individuals. And you might have a marriage shame. That your marriage might be stuck. Your marriage might be falling apart. You might be getting divorced. You might actually be divorced. And so in your marriage, there's a shame. And you put that underground and you don't want anybody to know. And it's one of those things where all of a sudden you find out somebody's marriage is breaking up. And it's like, what? I I thought you guys were doing so good. But we've gone underground and we don't have safe community. We don't share this with anybody. And so we struggle and we do it alone. But not only a individual shame, not only a marriage shame, we have family shame. And we struggle. Um, You might have somebody in your family who has run amok. Right? You might have a child that is a prodigal, a child who is using drugs, a child who has decided that their lifestyle is not going to be honoring God anymore. They might have chosen that they are now gay. They might be living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And so we don't want the people in the church to find out because that is not safe and that only brings more shame upon us. You might be single. And there might even be a shame, not that you have done anything wrong or that being single is anything wrong, but it might be hard to even set foot here in the church because there is this perception that if you are single, that you don't have your act together, that you haven't hit certain benchmarks in your maturity. And 
what the church kind of views and how the church views you is that we'll take you in and we will love you and you have reached what you need to reach once you get married. Or you might be married and once you have kids, then you can be part of the family and everything is and but that we fall so short in so many ways on all of these things or we're not meeting somebody else's standards so we struggle we hide and i know lots and lots of people who either don't show up here on sunday mornings because there is that perceived shame there is something put on or it's our own actions that have kept us from setting foot in this room and this place has to change The DNA of who we are as a people has to change if we are going to be drawing people in to know and follow Jesus Christ. And I want to illustrate that through two passages today. Would you go to Joshua chapter 7? The context for Joshua 7, just before this, Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land and they totally destroyed Jericho. Huge victory. Everybody's celebrating. But in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it starts with this word, but something's about to change. And this is what it says. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. They were told specifically, when you go into Jericho... If you're going to take something, take the silver and gold, and that is to be dedicated to the temple of the Lord, to the house of the Lord. But everything else, don't take anything for yourselves. Achan sees some really cool stuff, says, I want it, and he takes it. And because of that, the anger of God burned against him. We're not going to go through the whole passage. This is just a brush through here. Verse 3, so they returned to Joshua, and they said... Don't let all the people go up. They go to this next place. The next battle town is Ai. It's spelled Ai. It's kind of easy. And they go and they say, don't let everybody go. Only about two or 3,000. And so Joshua makes the decision that they're going to send 3,000 men against the town of Ai. And verse 5, the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men, pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people... The people of Israel, the hearts of the people, melted and became as water. Joshua starts pleading with the Lord, God, we had such amazing success in Jericho. What happened to us in Ai? It's actually a smaller town. We should have like knocked it out, no problem. And God returns to him and says, there's sin in the camp. And so they go through this process and one by one, Family by family, tribe by tribe, it gets narrowed down. And this is what happens in verse 15. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and everything, and all that belongs to him, because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Joshua gets up, and they bring everybody in front. And he says, all right, we're going to take the tribe of Judah. Everyone else, go. Now we take the tribe of Judah, and now we're going to find the family. And then we're going to find this little tribe. And then we're going to, now it boils down to Achan. And in verse 19, Joshua says to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to God. How? Give glory to God, the God of Israel. Give him praise and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it. And then Achan says, I have sinned against the Lord. I saw some stuff. And then he says, I coveted them. I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent 
with the silver underneath it. Our shame causes us to go underground with our sin. And so Achan literally puts stuff underground. And he takes all of this, and, and Joshua has some words for him in verse 24. Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold. And then he takes his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything. All that belonged to him. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Jump ahead. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Our shame, our sin brings on trouble upon more than just us. It's amazing because God says, this is how I want you to live. And then Achan says, but I want this. If only I had this, this will make me happy. This will make everything that I am lacking kind of go away. I'm not great at charts, but this is how I see it in my head. On the bottom left, we have kind of our present situation. This is this is where I'm at today. And that might be that you might feel stuck. You might be lonely and depressed. And so drugs and alcohol might feel like a good solution for you, right? You might be stuck in your marriage. And you want to, you want to find every other way possible to be able to be filled up. And so there's this gap between where we are currently and where we want to be in our happiness. And the question for us is, how do we fill that gap? What do we do with that? And we live in kind of this cosmopolitan magazine culture where the things that are offered by the world are, are, look like solutions, but really they, they fall short in, in really fulfilling the things that we need in our lives. C.S. Lewis addresses this, one of the greatest quotes of all time. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so when we do this and we go underground, it's not just affecting us. And we struggle with all of this. And that leaves us as a church as irrelevant and extreme. Because we have all of these rules and all of these doctrines and things that we're supposed to abide by. But we really stink at keeping to it. What's interesting to me is even that this story is in here. This is the only battle in, in Joshua's, the book of Joshua that, that there is a loss that's recorded. The rest of the battles, they, they win everything. Um, if you look at ancient Near Eastern culture and literature, uh, many of the stories, most of the stories are written about the victories and written about the successes and the things that you were prominent because what you wanted as a culture and as a people was you wanted to show that as the king went out that he had the blessing of the gods. The gods would go before and give victory. We didn't often write, they didn't often write about going out and the gods were not with them and they lost miserably. Those stories don't show up. It's the same for us though, right? We, we don't do a very good job at promoting, and, and there's a certain way to do this, but we don't like come out and say, hey, guess what I did? 
But the church, it feels like we are okay with your problems as long as they happened about five years ago and you worked through it all. We're not so good with the problems that you have right now. Right? But we should be the safest place on earth. And so some of that is our own, like, pride. It's our own, like, putting it out there that, like, we have our stuff together. And the struggle is that, that we don't, and it's pretty obvious to everybody else. That the world looks at us and says, I, I see this. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't look real good on you. I have uh, an email from a friend that we've been having a conversation. I, I respect this person in an amazing way. Um, and she's, she's worked through a lot of stuff. And I, I'm sharing this anonymously, but with her permission. Um, that, that she has struggled with alcohol, but has been sober for a, a good period of time. Um, she's been arrested and caught and had DUIs. She's had failed marriage. She's struggling in, in her relationship with her daughter as a single mom. And she's, she's working through a lot of this stuff. And she just sends me every once in a while just these nuggets of wisdom. And I just, I, I think that we need to hear this because this is, this is our heart and this is where many of us are at. And so she says that she read the book of Malachi and Malachi is dealing with us giving our offering. We kind of come here to like a church setting and, and, and we give lip service to God, but our hearts are far from it. And so she says, I, I, I read Malachi and I really identified as if that is me over and over I know I have a lot of flesh to contend with, what so easily entangles me. I need prayer, but I don't loosen my grip on what I use to feel better. Relationships, distractions, isolating, running. It's all that stuff in the gap. Everything I've had to let go of has claw marks. It just hits me in such a huge way. I'm an alcoholic and do everything alcoholically. One is too many and a thousand is never enough. That's why I really wish that everyone would read the first 164 pages of the Alcoholics Anonymous book. The first step from the 12 steps says, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. That applies to everything for me. And admitting that things make my life unmanageable is the hard part. I still want to control everything. God and my physical sobriety is all I have some days because the behavior is sure still there. But I do not enjoy my life apart from Jesus, nor do I like living a life parallel to what I know is right. I want my heart to be different. I want legitimate change. I don't want to give God my lame leftover offerings or defile my temple or retort to him. I have a real deep anguish in my heart for the position it's been in for the last year and a half. I feel like something has changed. Something is trying to make its way out, but my ego gets in the way a lot. Pray that I will have the willingness to surrender and not go back to what is safe. I love the change that God brings in my life. But then what always happens is I hear the reminder voice, the second crappy voice saying, this is as good as it gets for you, so you better take your own happiness. Deep down, I know it's crap. Not all happiness is good, not all pain is bad, but pray that I grab by the throat the concept of all is permissible, but not all is beneficial. Yeah, 
that's where we're at. We struggle. I mean, really, you look at this thing that we do called church. None of us is so good that we can stay out, and none of us is so bad that we can't be let in. But we operate not on those grounds, not on those assumptions. And so we have this shame that has to be dealt with. If we are going to engage with our culture, if we are going to have common ground and find common ground, I just want to encourage us. This is not to bring up all of your shame and make you feel bad, but I want you to hear that we have a God that wants to take these areas of our lives and give us hope. And so this is the second part, and I want you to go to Hosea chapter 2. For me, this is a pivotal and maybe one of the most important passages in my life. Um, I really, like, God, God brought this passage to me uh, at four in the morning at Denny's when my life was falling apart. And I was not sure how I was going to get out of it. Hosea is, is this story of a man named Hosea. God tells him to marry the town harlot. Her name is Gomer. And God uses his relationship... Hosea's relationship with Gomer as a picture of God as a faithful husband and Israel, the bride who keeps wandering away. And as Hosea is dealing with the town prostitute, he keeps calling her back. God says, no, take her back, restore, redeem. And so God talks about how he wants to restore from underground, from the shame. He wants to take this and he wants to change things. And so look at this. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. God speaking about his bride, Israel, us, the church. I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. I want you to just hear that God meets us and loves us in the midst of our wilderness experience. There's this language. He says, I will allure her. It's this romance language saying, I want to draw her in and I want to speak tenderly. In the wilderness, you know the wilderness was the place that Israel, they struggled, right, for 40 years. They were there. I don't know if it was that much of a struggle for God. I actually think that he enjoyed the attention, the the connection that he had, his ability to be able to provide for his people in the wilderness. So he says, I will take you and you will be there in the wilderness. I will speak kindly to her. And then in verse 15, it says, then I will give her her vineyards. I will give her her vineyards from there. From the wilderness there will be vineyards. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And there is so much going on right here. Let me just remind you that Achan and his family and oxen, everything, were taken to the valley of Achor. It's called the valley of trouble. Achor literally means trouble. And for generations and generations, the people of Israel would see that place, hear of that place, and they would remember the 36 that died. There was sin in the camp. We actually went into a battleground, and we did that without God. The story of the loss in Ai was a military campaign that was going forward without the help of God. God was not there because there was sin in the camp. So Achor, the valley of trouble, was always this troubling thing for Israel. It was a a source of shame, not just for Achan and his family, but for the whole tribe, for the whole nation. And God is saying, 
my church, my people, I love you. I want to bring you in and I want to take what has always been known, your wilderness experience, this valley of trouble for you, and I want to make it a door of hope. Where are you right now? What's going on in your life? What is your wilderness experience? Are you addicted to some kind of drug or alcohol and you're actually even feeling the pain of that this morning? And you can't stop. Are you here this morning in a struggling relationship or family situation? Are you lonely? And what are the ways that we have medicated and, and kind of soothed ourselves in ways that, that just brought brokenness? The God that we worship wants to bring beauty from ashes and freedom from shame. He's calling us out and he's saying, I'm going to take the valley of trouble that you are in right now and I want to make that a door of hope. God does not take pleasure in you and your brokenness, but he loves when his children come to him and say, I need you. And the response when we do that is the response that he's hoping for from Israel. She will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. What's crazy and amazing is that as Israel came out and they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 14, Exodus 15, they start singing this song. It's called the Song of Moses. Great are you, Lord. Marvelous are your works. Like they're just going to town singing this song. And Hosea is saying, when they come back and when they're out of this valley and they trust me to give them hope, then they will sing this song again. And the song shows up again at the end of history. It's still in our future. Revelation 15, once again, we will be singing the song of Moses. It'll kind of be like a number one hit in heaven. We should probably learn it now. But that's what God wants to do. God wants to redeem. God wants redemption. And as we are trying to offer this to people, we have to be doing a better job. So for us uniquely as Christians, as part of the body of Christ, the family of God, here's our call. Here's our challenge. What we have to offer when we have worked through our stuff and even in process of. You don't have to have all of your junk together to show up here. You could be right in the middle of the lowest valley of your life and that should be okay. We should be able to take you in and love you. And I'm willing. But what would it look like for us as a community if the DNA of what's going on here is that that was okay? Not sin however you want to. It's permissible. Come over here and do it. It's it's fine. No problem. But what, what would it look like for us if we loved people where they were at? What we can offer the world today is hope. The hope of Jesus in the wilderness of their troubles. Last week, David Kinnaman was here. If you didn't pick up his book, we still have some, and it's fantastic. But he, he said this, and if you read his chapter on marriage and family and relationships, this is, this is the walk away, and this is where I want us to go for today. That good faith Christians allow their marriages, their families, and I'd even add their relationships, that we would allow hospitality, our hospitality, to benefit others hospitality, that we have an inviting spirit, that we are making room for people in our lives to be able to impact and reach the lives of other people.
Um, I turned 40 this week, believe it or not. I did a mud run yesterday, and I feel a little bit more 40 today. Uh, but we, uh, Marilee and I, talked about, uh, let's do a party. And so we went through the list of people. She'd read off a name, and I'd say yes or no. Um, wanted to invite everybody here. Just couldn't. We're having another party October 31st. We're going to call it Light the Night. It's for my birthday. If I didn't invite you on in the first one, sorry. Um, but we went through the list, and at the end, we had 160 people on the list. And I laughed, and I said, no way. Um, so... I said, we need to edit it, but it's late, so let's come back to this. And uh, a couple days later, I checked in with Marilee, and I said, so when are we going to look at the list? She said, oh, I already sent the invitation. And I said, but you edited it, right? She said, no. People will respond. Not everyone's going to be able to come. It'll be fine. And then the RSVPs start rolling in. 120 of them for yes. I was rooting that some people would just say no, because... I do not have the gift of hospitality. I, man, I'm happy you come to the house of God. I love you. I welcome you. But if you come to my house and you're drinking my Cokes and my root beers and sitting on my couch, then I just, I struggle. I don't have, some of you, like you like people, you love people showing up unannounced to your house. You always have something like in the oven. You bring it out and you can have people, hey, no problem. We'll bring us sleeping bags. Sleep on our couch. It's fine, right? Like, not my house. You better like call make reservations like months ahead of time and it's like a max of a day, right? Like, I, I, I'm not proud of it, right? Um, I am a person in process. But our hospitality, we, we have to work on this. We have to be making room and inviting people, especially in their times of their wilderness. So when we look at the word wilderness in the Bible, um, much like the word love, When you read the word love in the English language, there's actually like different meanings for it, right? Like agape love, unconditional love, right? Or there's eros is the romantic love or phileo, the brotherly love. Well, the same thing goes when you look at the word desert or wilderness in the Bible. And I'm going to just teach you three words because I I think these are important for us to be able to engage with people wherever they're at. The first word meaning desert is midbar. Say midbar. There are some people who are in the midbar. This is not like the deep and extreme desert. This is a place, is the kind of desert that you can survive in. Shepherds can find grass for their sheep and they can kind of get around there. But it's not like lush, like, hey, welcome to Hawaii, right, in fertile land. This is a desert, but you can survive there. There are some people, this is the most used, about 270, 300 times, right? It's in there. You have a passage like Isaiah 35. You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the midbar. The second one is Sia. Say Tzia. Tzia. Not everyone did it. Come on, participation now. Tzia. Thank you. I'm just kind of pushy like that. I'm sorry. Uh, but the Tzia is, is survivable, but you need help. It's translated sun-scorched. You could find water, but it would be about a day's journey. And so you have to have friends. You are dependent on hospitality if you are in this region. And so you have a passage like Psalm 105. He opened the rock and water gushed out and it flowed through the desert or the tzia like a river. And then the last one is called Yeshimon. Say Yeshimon. Yeshimon. All right. That was good. See, we're learning. Yeshimon is the wilderness in which no one can survive. Uninhabitable land. You can't do it. Psalm 68. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the Yeshimon. What's... What's amazing is that out of the 40 years that Israel 
was wandering through the wilderness, 35 of those years, they were in the Yeshima. But almost every time it is mentioned in the scriptures, it's actually described as Midbar. Because God, through his kindness and through his hospitality, made something that felt totally unbearable, not survivable. We will never make it through. God took that and refreshed them. They not only survived, but they thrived. That is our call. That is our call that we would go out in whatever place of wilderness the people in this room or outside of this room, when they come to us, that we would help them. That, that we get to be partakers in the healing that God is offering. And so we get to be part of that, and then we get to bring them to the ultimate healer. But that's our calling, is that we make some of the stuff, the wilderness, the horrible stuff that we go through, as survivable. Who is your marriage, your family, your relationships, your singleness, your friendships? Who are you making room for? How can you be a safe person? How can your marriage be a safe marriage? How can your family be a safe family? And where are you going to find safety and refuge? In your bulletin today, you have this half sheet. If you grab it. They look exactly the same except for the words on the top. And there's a question here. The question is, where is there brokenness in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships? Where is there brokenness that needs healing? Trouble that needs hope in these realms, and maybe this isn't all of them, but where is that needed in your life? Where is there brokenness in your marriage, brokenness in your families, even just brokenness within yourself? You need healing and you need hope. On the backside, who are the people that you need to make room for or show hospitality to in these realms of your life? Um, My encouragement right now is that we respond to this that we have to do something with this, that you might just take a couple minutes here as we go and we, we go to God and we, we come to the altar and we worship him. Uh, you might need to write some of this down. You might need to go up to somebody who's trusted in this room or come up to the prayer points on the sides and say, this is where I need help. I need some safety right now. I need some help. Would you pray for me? Would you walk alongside me in some of this? And who are the people that you need to make room for in your life? There are people all around us that need help. And I feel like I've set up a lot of barriers and boundaries and have not let people in. And so who are those people that God is putting on your heart today? And as an action step that we would go out and make room, but tell them that we made room for them. Say, hey, um, I know you're struggling right now. Come on. Let's do this together. I don't have all my stuff together, but... Let's just be faithful to praying for each other, meeting up. That will change this church and the church. We will be relevant and we will not be seen as extreme. We will be known by our love 
and our care for others. So as we go into this and we have our stations here today, and you can remember the kindness of God that he gave us his son, and he's invited us in, in our brokenness, that he takes our sin and gives us the opportunity towards salvation in a different life, that we remember that as we take the bread and the cup and as we give this morning. But receive prayer and find community, and we'll talk and kind of wrap all this up in a little bit, but that we come out and we, we worship God. And maybe this is a time where you need to pull somebody aside and you just need to talk. You just need to do business. So let's pray. God, there's in so many ways that we struggle um, feeling less than, feeling like we haven't made it, or if only I had this, this, and this in place that all of the details of my life would be healed and I would be uh, just in a better spot. And so, God, there's some of this stuff within me and with all within all of us, that it, it, it's our own barriers that we put up. It's our own sin that keeps us from real community and finding common ground with one another. And God, there's some of my even just preconceived notions of, of people and their sin and their brokenness that I don't want to really be a part of. And I've put up barriers and walls and not let them in. So God, do work in my heart because for me personally, I need to make room. Thank you for being a God who sees us and you see our brokenness and you take our shame and you make it a door of hope that you've never given up on us and you love us. And so we come to you right now. God, speak to us and give us permission to be vulnerable. Give us permission to have courage to step into some of these conversations and in these relationships. In Jesus' name.